The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Tom Powers, documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. Tom's been the documentary programmer at TIFF since 2006, and he also was the founding artistic director of Doc NYC, which is the largest documentary film festival in the United States. He also is co-founder of the Montclair Film Festival and the Cinema Eye Honors. Probably the two major signposts for documentaries on the festival circuit are Sundance in January and TIFF every September. So it was great to talk to Tom to get a preview of this year's lineup, which is sure to have a number of Oscar contenders, as well as some amazing international selections. This year's Toronto International Film Festival takes place from September 7th through the 17th. More information can be found at tiff.net. And now my conversation with Tom Powers. Tom Powers, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you very much for having me. Long time listener, first time caller. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate that. Um, it means a lot. You know, we're here today to talk about TIFF Docs. It's always an exciting moment on the documentary calendar when your lineup is released. It's always much anticipated and it really does, I think, mark a turn in the sort of annual cycle of documentaries. So congratulations on the lineup. Thank you. It's a big moment each year. I've been doing this for 18 years. Uh, and so there's months of work that goes into it, not just me, but many of my colleagues at TIFF who put a lot of work into reviewing over 800 documentary feature submissions this year. And it's great to have them out in the public and, and to be starting to talk about them. Let's pull back a second and just for folks who are not that familiar with TIFF or with this section, which is called TIFF Docs, can you just talk a bit about how documentaries are sort of organized at TIFF? Toronto International Film Festival started in 1976. Documentaries were always integral to the program that first year, the Festival showed Barbara Koppel's first film, Harlan County, USA. The presence of documentaries got its own showcase sometime in the 1990s when it was originally a section called Real to Real. So the Toronto Film Festival overall this year will show about 200 feature films. And we will probably be showing around 30 documentaries spread across the festival we show some documentaries in our big gallus section for high profile figures who are coming to the festival in our special presentation section. But the TIFF Doc section this year has between 22 and 24 films, depending on how it shakes out when we're all done. That's the, the main space for documentaries at the festival. And what awards do you give out to documentaries? There is a documentary audience prize 
that our viewers choose. So, you know, over the years, that prize has gone to films like Free Solo that went on to win the Academy Award. And then there's a prize called the Amplify Prize for Emerging Directors. Last year, that went to While We Watched, a, a film that's just making its way into the worlds now. is going to be coming to PBS's POV series in September. We don't have a documentary jury prize like some festivals do. You've been the documentary programmer since 2006, which is about 17 years. That's a long run. How has your job evolved over the years and how has the documentary lineup evolved in terms of, you know, the kinds of films that you're seeing and programming at TIFF? That's a great and big question. I think documentary as a field has changed a lot since 2006. The year I started at TIFF, documentaries had been significant at the festival and, you know, films like Terry Zweigoff's Crumb had, you know, come through TIFF, you know, things that were like important documentaries that would resonate for years and years to come had played in that section. But a challenge at TIFF is because there are so many big international fiction films that attract a lot of attention. It could be the case for some documentaries at TIFF that they could feel overshadowed by that, or, you know, they were playing in the smaller theaters, or it was a little harder for them to get press because the press was going elsewhere. And listen, that is a challenge for documentaries, you know, forever in any venue, but TIFF was no exception. When I started, I was coming out of a 10-year experience being a documentary filmmaker. I had my own production company in New York, Sugar Pictures, and I'd done work for HBO and PBS. And I really came from a mentality of wanting to give documentaries as much attention as they could, give them the, the attention that I wished my own films had gotten more of. And TIFF is this unique platform. It's, you know, one of two or three places in the year where most of the international press and industry gather. It's extra unique because of its public audiences in Toronto, you know, most diverse city in the world. So if you're showing a film about Ukraine, you can bet Ukrainians are going to be there. If you're showing a film about Brazil, there's going to be Brazilians in the audience. If you're going to show a film about the Caribbean, there's going to be people of Caribbean descent in the audience. So that is a really exciting facet of a special part of showing films in Toronto. And I wanted, you know, I saw my job as a programmer to try to use this platform as best I could to make as much excitement around docs as I could. In 2006, up until then, in the festival's history, there had not been a documentary that had shown as a gala in our biggest theater. A footnote to that, there, once there was a Ron Mann documentary that played as a closing night film, so that is a gala. But otherwise, in the 30 prior years, there hadn't been a documentary that played as a gala. That year, Barbara Koppel had a new film, Shut Up and Sing, about the band and called the Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks. It was an extraordinary film, and the band was supporting it and would come. And I really lobbied internally to get that film as a gala. At that time, TIFF's co-artistic director was Noah Cowan, who had hired me at the festival. 
Noah passed away this year, so it's extra poignant to bring his memory into the room. Noah wasn't sure about showing this film about what he perceived as like a country band at the festival. I said, well, let me screen it and get as many women from the Toronto staff in the room to show it. And I think that might help you see the audience for this film. And that worked. And so we showed that film at the gala. A few years later, TIFF had its first opening night film that was a documentary with the Davis Guggenheim's film about U2. And since then, we've had a lot of film show as galas. There's a lot of what happens at a film festival that is invisible work. And that, that's an example of it. One more question about just the process of choosing films, you know, and this is, I think, especially of interest to filmmakers. How does a film get into your lineup? What is your curatorial process? Yeah, great question. So we have open submissions on Film Freeway. Every one of those films gets watched. We have a team of screeners who are watching everything there and they give each film a ranking and the films that have the top rankings get recommended to me. I also work alongside a team of 20 or so programmers who are traveling the world. Many of those programmers have regional specialties. Natalia Hunter-Young covers Africa and the Middle East for us. Dorota Leck covers East Europe and several other territories for us. Diana Cadavid covers Latin America. Gianna Fulvi covers Asia. So each of these programmers have deep roots in other communities and are making recommendations to me, or if I'm seeing a film where they may have greater expertise in the background than I do, then I can share that with them for their feedback. Now, like I said, we'll show about 30 documentaries this year across the program. Out of the 800 film submissions, there were surely more than 30 really good films. There's a few hundred films that I think are strong that I could see bringing in an audience. The process of selecting the group that we choose is partly about finding some kind of balance. You know, we're looking for a balance between global stories. There's so much U.S. production, you could easily fill up 30 slots with just 30 strong U.S. films, but we have a different mandate at TIFF. We're looking to showcase not only veteran filmmakers, filmmakers whose work we've shown before, and this year that includes filmmakers like Frederick Wiseman and Lucy Walker and Raoul Pack, but we're also looking to find new filmmakers, emerging filmmakers. I think of a couple of years ago when we showed Rebecca Hunt's Beba that went on to be acquired by Neon and Hulu. So that's a different kind of balance that we're looking for. Again, you know, over the years, there are there's so many great filmmakers that have passed through Toronto. We could probably fill up our more than 20 slots with just returning filmmakers, but we're looking for something else. We're looking to create space for new voices as well as experienced voices. And then there's a balance between subject matter. I could have filled this year's section with 25 celebrity profiles. There is an undeniable surge right now in biographical filmmaking. And each one of those films has an audience, has a fan base. That's why they were made. 
but I'm looking to cover uh, a wider breadth of storytelling than just biographies. So that's a different kind of balance. And then the last balance I would say is over, I guess we could say tone in a film. Documentaries cover a lot of serious subjects. You know, I could show 25 films of very heavy, important stories, but I think we would lose some of our audience. And the world is not just a heavy place. There has to be room for humor and discovery and imagination. And so I'm looking to create a balance there. Well, thank you for not showing 25 celebrity dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we actually wound up with very few, I have to say. Well, hats off. This year's lineup so far, you've announced 22 titles in TIFF Docs from 12 countries. I'm sure you may well announce a couple more before all is said and done. You've got many world premieres, North American premieres, and you mentioned that you strive for a mix of sort of global veteran doc makers and more mid-career auteurs and rising stars. Let's talk about some of the global veterans and, and the films they're bringing to TIFF this year. Actually, I want to mention Raul Peck. Let's start with him. I'm sure you know many people are familiar with, if not his whole body of work, at least I Am Not Your Negro, which was a breakthrough a few years ago. What is Raul bringing to the festival this year? Raul Peck came to the festival in 2016 to premiere I Am Not Your Negro. He's shown many films at the festival over the years. His long relationship with Cameron Bailey, the head of the festival. When we brought in I Am Not Your Negro, I thought it was a strong film. I could not have expected, not would have anticipated that it was going to jump out into the awards race, go all the way to an Oscar nomination and become one of the highest theatrical grossing documentaries of the next year. I often bring that up as an example of the surprises that can happen at TIFF. You know, I consider myself a pretty knowledgeable person about how audiences are going to react, how the industry is going to respond to a film. But there is always room to be surprised. And I'm not your Negro is one of the surprises. So his new film, Silver Dollar Road, is another way of looking at Black resistance to systemic racism, the way I'm not your Negro was. If I'm not your Negro was the essay form of that, Silver Dollar Road is the family saga version of that. This is a film based on reporting in The New Yorker and ProPublica by the journalist Lizzie Presser. She was looking at a family in North Carolina, the Reels, who for several decades have been fighting to keep land that's been in their family for over 100 years. Two of the members of that family went to jail as part of this fight, as like land-grabbing developers are trying to get their hands on the Reels' land. I found this film utterly compelling in the way it shows all the blatant ways and the, the subtle ways in which power tries to encroach on the rights of people with less means. Definitely looking forward to that one. And what about Anand Patwardhan? He's got a new film as well. Anand Patwardhan has been to the festival many times before his last trip to the festival with his film Reason, 
that film went on to win the top prize at uh, in Amsterdam. Anand, who's now in his early 70s, has been making independent documentaries in India for decades. For a long time, he was almost singular as an independent documentary filmmaker working in India, reaching an international audience. Today, of course, we're seeing a huge rise in independent Indian documentary making. Films like All That Breathes that was nominated for an Oscar this year or While We Watched that I mentioned before. But Anand is the real trailblazer in this respect. And his new film, which is called The World is Family, is a autobiographical portrait of his parents. So Anand is probably best known for his deep sociopolitical films. And this one definitely has sociopolitical themes, but is more of a personal examination of his parents. It's also a relatively short film for Anand. Some of his films have gone on for a few hours. This is a tight 90 minutes. But his parents have incredible life stories, as well as their extended families, that are intertwined with the leaders of India's independence movement, including Gandhi. And it's really an incredible love story between them, not only their love for each other and their love for their family, but their love for the ideas that were propelling India's independence, ideas around anti-caste and ideas around unity between religions. And these are ideas that are strongly in need of reaffirmation today as we see more and more political divisiveness in India and indeed across the world. So the world is family that's having its world premiere at TIFF. That will be a special one. Another filmmaker who I'm guessing has had his work screen at TIFF before is Kareem Amer. He's got a new film called Defiant that I was eager to to hear about. He's well known as both a producer of The Square and also a director in his own right. That's right. So Kareem was at Toronto. I can't remember how many years ago was it the, that The Square came. And that was a memorable film, not only for its story, capturing the longitudinal study of Egyptians who were part of the Arab Spring, but it was also the first big documentary acquisition that Netflix made and went on to be nominated for an Academy Award. And it really began the whole era of Netflix's strong involvement in documentary films that has evolved over the years. So Kareem is back this year with the film Defiant. In the same way that he was embedding with activists in Egypt, this time he's embedding with government officials in Ukraine against the backdrop of Russia's war against Ukraine from the last year. In this film, we're following some of the people who have to lead the war in the halls of diplomacy and wage a war against disinformation. We're following Ukraine's foreign minister. We're following people who have to deal with the technology side of keeping Wi-Fi going in the country and a lot of the aspects of what happens in wartime that we don't often see because usually attention is diverted to what's happening on the ground. We've seen many strong films about Ukraine in the last year, and we 
have a couple other perspectives on the refugee crisis in Eastern Europe this year. But this film I found really unique for what it shows us, uh, an aspect of government in wartime that we don't often see. A few other veterans whose names may stand out to folks, Lucy Walker, Roger Ross Williams, and you had mentioned Frederick Wiseman. Yes, and I would add Errol Morris to that list and Alex Gibney as well. I don't think we have time for me to detail every one of their films. I'll highlight Lucy Walker's film because it's kind of a, a special full circle to me because in my first year at TIFF, I showed what was her second feature film called Blind Sight, which was about a group of blind climbers trying to take on Mount Everest. Now in her new film, Mountain Queen, the summits of Lakpa Sherpa, she's looking at the woman Lakpa Sherpa who has summited Mount Everest more than any other woman. But that's actually not even the biggest challenge that Lakpa Sherpa has undergone in her life. She grew up in Nepal, illiterate in a community that did not put any investment in a girl's education. She would carry her brother through the mountains to school every day on a trek that was more than an hour each way. Today, or when we meet her in this film uh, a year ago, she was living in Connecticut as a single mother with an abusive marriage behind her, raising two teenage daughters and making her living as a dishwasher at the Whole Foods. She is an incredibly determined person who wanted to make a better life for her daughters and decided to try to do one more expedition, even though she's in her 40s and working a full-time job, did not really have the ability to train. She makes one more attempt to ascend Mount Everest. But climbing is only one aspect of this film. The story of her and her daughters, to me, is really at the heart of this film. It does seem like family and community and home is kind of a theme among some of the films. I might pivot to a different theme, which is theme of women of great accomplishment who have been overlooked. So clearly that is true in the film Mountain Queen, but it's also true in the film Copa 71, which we selected as the opening night of TIFF Docs. So this film Copa 71 looks at a women's international soccer tournament billed as a World Cup that took place in 1971 in Mexico City, 20 years before the official first FIFA World's Cup happened. This event packed Azteca Stadium in Mexico City with over 100,000 spectators, which is the largest ever to this day for a women's sporting event. And yet, at the time they started making this film, directors Rachel Ramsey and James Erskine, this event had basically been erased from history. Today, it has a Wikipedia entry that happened during the making of the film, but otherwise, it's gone missing. The executive producers on this film include the U.S. soccer legend Alex Morgan, along with Venus Williams and Serena Williams, that speaks to, I think, the importance of this as a story around women's sports. But he, I mean, it's just a great film, period. 
which is why we picked it as, as opening night. So Rachel Ramsey, this is her first feature documentary, and I'm really looking forward to audiences experiencing this film. I love seeing films that revisit an event that's been lost to history, essentially, and also exploring the reasons why it's been, quote, lost to history. And by the way, the archival footage from 1971 around this film, which the filmmakers spent a long time digging into the archives to find, is just incredible, you know, largely shot on 60 millimeter film. I also noticed in the lineup that there are a number of important indigenous stories. Can you tell us a bit about some of the indigenous topics and filmmakers who are screening this year? Absolutely. So, you know, in this respect, I have a real privilege to work alongside programmer Jason Ryle, who leads the Imaginative Festival in Toronto and brings a real depth of knowledge and filmmaking, international filmmaking network around Indigenous issues. So there are three films that in different ways connect to Indigenous subjects. One is called Homecoming that Jason programmed from the Sami community in Finland. This is a story about objects from that community that have been in museums for many years and are finally being brought back into the community. So you get to understand this layer of history that created these conditions in the first place, and then you really get to experience the meaningfulness for the community to be reconnected to these ancestral objects. Another film is called God is a Woman by Swiss Panamanian filmmaker Andres Perrault. He's been working on this, I think, for 10 years. And in some ways, this is a film uh, about a film. The focal point is Panama's Kuna community. And many years ago in the 1970s, an Oscar-winning French documentarian came to that community seeking to make a film about them and promised them that when his film was made, he'd give them a copy. For various reasons, that never happened. And so decades later, when Andres met members of that community, they told him the story that for decades, we've been wanting to see this film that was made about us. So he collaborated with members of the community to follow this quest of theirs to see this film. That one, again, is called God is a Woman, and people should definitely look out for that. And then the third one, uh, Boil Alert, which is a Canadian production programmed by my colleague Norm Wilner, who oversees Canadian programming at the festival, and at Kelly Boutsalis, who works alongside Norm programming Canadian films. So Boil Alert is looking at Indigenous Canadian community raising activism around the quality of water. So you mentioned that you seek to achieve a balance of tone. What are some of the, the films that maybe are more on the lighter side or at least embrace humor or imagination or sense of discovery? What are some of those films we should be looking for? So, well, I would say the biggest you know, what the fuck storyline of the festival, or the documentary section anyways, is a film called The Contestant, which is about a reality TV show contestant in Japan, the early days of reality TV, who is confined to a room for over a year 
with his clothes taken away and left with a stack of magazines. And his job was to fill out sweepstakes coupons in order to win everything he needed for survival, food, clothes, etc. And he diligently did this work without realizing that his life in confinement was being broadcast in a weekly TV show. And he emerged after more than a year to come to discover that he was one of the most famous people in Japan. So that film is called The Contestant. And what I just described is not even the whole story. There are more story beats that take place in his life after that. A film that has a layer of humor in it is Flipside. This is a film by Chris Wilcha. It's executive produced by Judd Apatow, which gives you a sense of its humorous bent. So Chris Wilcha spent two years making the TV show, This American Life, that only lasted two seasons before This American Life's host, Ira Glass, decided he didn't really want to be doing television. This film kind of plays like an episode of This American Life and the way that This American Life often will take a personal story and find universal qualities in it. So the personal story in this case is director Chris Wilcha going back to his hometown in New Jersey, to the record store where a lot of his youthful artistic ambitions were born. Today, that record store called Flipside is barely hanging on, like this is true of many record stores. Chris sets out on a quest to save it, but he's also kind of second-guessing choices that he made throughout his life, choices between artistic fulfillment and making a living to raise your family. You know, it's choices that are familiar to many of us in middle age. This documentary, Flipside, is really a beautiful exploration of those themes. In terms of style and form and filmmakers who are doing interesting things. You mentioned the use of archival and COPA 71. What are some of the films where we can expect to see something sort of unique in terms of an original vision? To me, a film that is unlike any other in the section is Songs of Earth by filmmaker from Norway, Margrethe Olin. She's been to the festival before with fiction, through fiction work. In Songs of Earth, she is looking at the mountainous landscape of Norway, where she grew up through the experiences of her father, who's now in his mid 80s. And we followed him on a series of treks through the mountains, the glaciers, the waterfalls, the fjords of that landscape. And there is stunning cinematography, both on an epic level capturing these landscapes and also on a micro level, getting close to insects and flowers and looking in the face of a white owl. This film is a kind of immersion into nature that's unlike anything else that we're showing this year. Among the first time filmmakers who we haven't touched on or maybe a second feature, is there somebody whose work you'd like to highlight? Yeah, let me call out a film called Walls by Polish-Italian filmmaker Cassia Smutniak. She has a background as an actor and transitioned to make a documentary here. In Walls, she is looking at the 
borderland between Poland and Belarus, a so-called red zone that's become a point of refugee migration that Poland is trying to cut off with barbed wire and heavy surveillance and policing. What happens is refugees often get caught in the woods in this red zone, and there are activists who will you know, use cell phone technology to get a GPS pin on the refugees and enter the forest and try to find them and rescue them. So Cassia enters into this work following the activists. This film has the pacing of a thriller because they're always under pursuit by police or military that are trying to shut down this activism. The other layer to this film is recognizing how at the same time Poland is trying to keep out refugees from certain countries, it's happening simultaneously as they're welcoming in refugees from Ukraine. So you really get the sense of so-called good refugee versus a bad refugee and how your fate can be determined by what country you come from. So that film, Walls, that's one of the terrific discoveries for me. Dorota Lack, who programmed that film, she learned about it on a late summer programming trip to Italy, and we're really lucky to have it. We don't have time to talk about all the films, but this is the wild card moment. Is there any other film that you'd like to mention that we haven't talked about? Well, let me say a word about Frederick Wiseman's film, because... Frederick Wiseman, I have to believe, is the most senior director at the festival this year at age 93. I remember I wrote to him last April because I was going to be visiting Paris where he lives and asked if we could get together. And he said, I can't. I'm going to be shooting. His stamina to be in the field for weeks at a time is extraordinary to me. In this case, the effort was probably made a little bit easier by the fact that he was filming a three-star Michelin restaurant in France. So the, the four-hour length of this film really allows the audience to just take in all the pleasures of being in that space. My French is terrible, so I will say the name of the film and people who speak French can wince. The name of the film is Menus Placiers Les Trois Grands. Fred has been making films as long as I've been alive. His first film, his first documentary, Titty Cut Follies, came out the year I was born. We've shown many of his films over the years in my time there, and it'll be a real pleasure to welcome him back to the festival. Well, that is a delectable treat to perhaps end our discussion of the lineup. I can imagine that the craft services table on that film set were not bad. <laughs> Beat anyone else's. I did want to ask you just overall, TIFF does have a kind of special place in the calendar. You're early to mid-September, which really kind of launches the fall award season. And without you know naming any specific titles, but do you think that we could expect to see TIFF play a central role again this year in the Oscar hunt? I think that is likely because, as you know, as many people who follow the progression of awards contenders have observed in 2023, at this point in August, we normally have a handful or more than a handful of films that have been 
gaining momentum throughout the year, you know, a big film like Summer of Soul that just seems to be a total consensus favorite or 20 Feet from Stardom several years ago. And so this year in 2023, we don't really have that film that's a consensus favorite. And so the field really does seem wide open for what are the films we're going to be talking about at the end of the year. So amongst the films that feel obvious to pick out this year are filmmakers who have been nominees or Oscar winners before. So that includes Lucy Walker with Mountain Queen. It includes Roger Ross Williams with his film Stamp from the Beginning that I haven't had a chance to talk about, but this is based on the best-selling book by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and, and is backed by Netflix. So it's bound to be getting a lot of attention. Certainly Raul Peck's film, Silver Dollar Road, that's backed by Amazon. And Raul, having been a past Oscar nominee, that would be one to look at. Errol Morris has a new film that I also haven't had a chance to say much about, but I'm sure audiences are going to find that on their own. It's called The Pigeon Tunnel, featuring the last interview that the author David Cornwell, better known as John le Carre, gave in his life. The Pigeon Tunnel is based on a memoir by John le Carre. So those are at least four that I can see. Kareem Ammer with Defiance is a past nominee. With some of these films, it will remain to be seen whether they will go into release this year and be part of the awards talk this year or if they'll hold till next year, which was the case of the film While We Watched that premiered at TIFF last year, but was released this year, just had theatrical openings in London and New York that I was at. Both those had a huge reception of members of the Academy Doc branch. So I think while we watched from last year could be entering this year's awards conversation. Yes, it's really up in the air right now. And early in our conversation, I gave the example of I Am Not Your Negro, which premiered at the festival and then very you know quickly got qualified. So there could be a film like that this year that gets picked up for distribution and enters the Oscar race. One last question real quick. You just mentioned distribution. And, you know, I think the distribution situation with documentary is always evolving. There's a certain amount of, I would say, concern about the current distribution picture. TIFF is one of the very few actual festivals that's a market for acquisitions. What is your sense in talking to distributors and filmmakers and sales agents about what kind of activity we're likely to see at, at TIFF around documentaries? Well, it's all a wait and see. You know, I mean, I think back at some big sales that took place at TIFF over the years when the film collective sold to Magnolia or the Square to Netflix or the Elephant Queen to Apple or made into Sony Pictures Classics, 76 Days to MTV. Some of those I might have predicted, but most of those I would not have predicted. So it is hard to be guessing. We're speaking a little less than five weeks before the festival, what's going to happen. I think there are a number of films coming in as sales titles this year, far more than we had last year. And in terms of sales titles that are backed by significant agents who know how to work that system. So CAA is representing Mountain Queen and 
and also the film Sorry Not Sorry, which I haven't had a chance to talk about, but people will definitely be hearing a lot about that film. The sales agent Dog Wolf is representing Copa 71 and so a, a ballet film called Swan Song that's playing as a special presentation. UTA is representing Flipside that I talked about. Alex Gibney's new film about Paul Simon called In Restless Dreams is for sale. So there is certainly going to be a lot on offer. Films that I think are going to play very strongly with audiences. We'll see what happens. We will. And I just want to say I had the good fortune of going to TIFF once and there's nothing like the excitement of being there at the birth of the fall film season, seeing these films with an audience, with the filmmakers there. There's an incredible energy. I'm guessing that 2023 is going to really be the year that you're completely back post-pandemic, hopefully. So I would just urge everyone out there, if you have the opportunity to go to TIFF, you should do so. Maybe you'll even see Tom Powers running around. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, long before I worked at TIFF, I would go there. It's I'm originally from Detroit. It's about a four-hour drive from Detroit to Toronto. It was an easy way to experience a wealth of international cinema. And I, yeah, I might go there for three or four days and come back having vicariously experienced stories from around the world in a city that's easy to navigate, that has great food, great communities. So yes, if you've never been to the Toronto Film Festival, this is my invitation to come. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being here. Congratulations to you and the entire TIFF staff on the lineup and just really, really excited to see these films and experience the best in documentary. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you.